0: Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our most recent episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Shasodia. Hi there, Raj.
2: Hi, Timothy. Good to see you again.
1: Good to see you. And Well, today we have an old friend, Dove Seidman, who's been involved with Conscious Capitalism in one way or another as a speaker, as a supporter, for a good 10 years plus, almost from the beginning. Now, Dove's special because he's an entrepreneur, CEO, author, and teacher. He's the founder and chairman of the Howe Institute for Society, a global nonprofit, nurtures the culture of moral leadership. And we'll talk a lot about that principle decision-making and values-based behavior that enables individuals and institutions to meet the profound social, economic, technological changes. 21st century. So we'll jump into a lot of that. As importantly, he's also the founder and chairman of LRN, one of the leading global ethics and compliance management companies, and he's written an incredible book that has been out for a while, but is still a classic and still one that I recommend all the time as one of the key ones you got to read. It's a New York times bestseller, how, why, how we do anything means everything. And besides that, he's a Harvard Law grad, an Oxford Law grad, and from UCLA, where he majored in moral philosophy. And that'll be a key thing that we're
0: going to come back to. Dove, welcome to our show. Uh, Timothy, and I've become accustomed to calling you Tim, so I hope that's okay. Tim and Raj, it's nice to be uh, reconnected meaningfully on your show
1: last week Dove you spoke with us about the the important role that morality and moral philosophy plays in our society and business this week Raj, I'd like to turn the discussion more to the role of moral leadership in business and society and some of the work you've been doing with the How Institute around both the practice of moral leadership and the survey of it.
2: I think this is a great segue into your uh, recent report on the uh, state of moral leadership, which is a beautiful contribution. Thank you for these wonderful reports that you put out periodically. They are such a valuable resource. I've used uh, many of them over the years. And so I want to talk about moral leadership, which I think we will all recognize is an incredibly short supply in the world. Yeah, Certainly in the political world, we've seen the complete lack of courage and principles and values behind so many of our political leaders in the world, and certainly also uh, in the world of business. And so let's talk about What was the, uh, you know, what prompted you? I think this is the first one of these that you've done, right? Moral leadership, because you've talked about democracy or freedom. You've done the freedom reports in the past. Our
0: report, the freedom report. No, I think the moral leadership one, I think we've done three. Oh, Uh, yeah. And then we did one on uh, the state of human connection Mm. uh, in a digital Mm. world around the pandemic when, you know, Aristotle is never going to be proven wrong. We are social animals, and we were told to socially distance uh, and we really saw that human connection frayed, uh, especially in the pandemic. And because we yearn to be connected meaningfully to others, to colleagues, to teammates, to institutions that we can believe in. Mm-hmm. And that was really challenged. But before we jump in, I just wanna make a definitional point because you've brought yeah. up moral leadership, morality. Uh, moral leadership and is not about moralizing. It's not about Hmm. becoming moralistic. It's not becoming an expert on moral dilemmas. Uh, Frankly, what makes a moral dilemma a moral dilemma is that both choices are suboptimal or bad. But a leader needs to make the choice anyhow and enlist people into the thinking as to why we got to go right and not left or left and not right. And it is what it is. And both choices are not satisfactory. But uh, here's how we might think about them and go about them. Moral leadership is really about the how, mm-hmm. right? How you treat others, how you wield power. You have power and authority. Do I do it autocratically or uh, transparently and openly? Uh, do I manage top-down or or more, um, more horizontally, connect and collaborate? So we'll go through it. But, um, you know, 40 years ago uh, or 50, the, the movie The Graduate, remember the Dustin Hoffman character, and I'm dating all of us probably, was told, young man, the future is plastics. Uh, I believe that the future in business is frameworks. All human judgment is framework dependent. CSR, CRM, TQM, right? HRIS, ERP. What do all these acronyms stand for? These acronyms stand for a systematic approach to some aspect of business that we want to scale. Because what's great about business and what I love about business is business does extraordinary things at scale. And to do anything at scale, you need to have a systematic approach that comes from a system, a framework. And what makes a framework a framework is that everything in the framework, every facet of it is there to support everything else. And I think the next frontier is going to be a framework for conduct, for the how, how we lead, how we operate, how we govern, how we hire for character, not just talent and skill, how we make decisions that take the future and the environment Uh, and other stakeholders into account, but the world has been reshaped to demand of us a framework. And moral leaders have and are scaling normative frameworks because it's very simple. We can either specify for everybody what they can and can't do, what the law requires, and what corporate policy allows. And we can just be amoral about this. Here's what you can and can't do, and then go for it. But I believe that constructing our affairs based on specifying what you can and can't do and just going for things no longer maps to the world and to expectations of society, of those in charge and of, of, of institutions. We are now in a normative world, as in should. And if you want to be mindful of, of what you should and should not do, we need to scale normative frameworks, as in norms, moral norms. Now, why is corporate culture become so important? If you don't want to be normative, you don't need culture. Culture was invented to transmit norms from one generation to the other, cultural norms. If you don't need to be normative, we can just do this with rule books. Just tell people what they can and can't do. Culture is now so central to the skills, the ability to foster and scale culture is now central because we are in a normative world. So we need to be really good about that which, right? generates and transmits and scales norms. That is the work of a moral leader. A moral leader is normative, as it should, okay? I love that. And I this is that. happening at a time where machines are being programmed to do the next thing right, but only humans can do the next right thing. Yeah. So that's what that's really what moral leaders have, a model and a playbook for the should and the should not in, yep. in that way. They are mindful of required conduct. By law, regulation and policy, we have requirements and we should, we should learn to navigate the requirements and, and always honor them and never step beyond them. But above and beyond doing what's required of us, the world is demanding through how it operates and expectations that we do not just what's required, but what's inspired. Mm. What's right? Mm. What's empathetic? What's inclusive? What's diverse? what's respectful. And I can go on and on. And that's really the focus of moral leaders. They understand that they live in a world where they have to operate within bounds and requirements, but then go above and beyond to do what's inspired. They're inspirational in that way. And they have a framework for that. And before I jump into the framework of that and what this, uh, the moral leadership report really uh, revealed, let's frame what I think is the single greatest management and leadership challenge of the 21st century. Tim and Raj, would you agree that you cannot anything without somebody in charge? I can't imagine uh, a football team without a head coach. I can't imagine a school without a principal, a store without a store manager, a battalion without a general, right? A country without a prime minister, president, right? You need somebody in charge or a company without a CEO. But I think we know intuitively that what makes a human organization or a community or a country work is when individuals with moral authority occupy positions of formal authority. So we need positions of formal authority, or we will have chaos, dysfunction, and no possibility of orderly governance. We need positions of formal authority. But it's only when individuals with moral authority occupy these positions of formal authority do things really work as they're intended to. Now, in the past, we tended to conflate the two. The the world was more vertical, more opaque, less transparent. And we said, he must be a great man. And typically it was a man or how else would he have climbed that high or the board wouldn't put him there? He's a great man. But now we are seeing through how transparent and connected the world is, how distinct they are. That formal authority could be won in an election. You could seize it. Uh, A Silicon Valley entrepreneur could try to lock it up with 20 to one supermajority shares but moral authority is generated as a function of who you are and how you lead and how you relate to others. And that's really the challenge. How do we nurture a culture of individuals who lead with moral authority? That's step one. And how do we ensure that those are the individuals who are in positions of formal authority? That's what I deem to be the single greatest challenge. And -hmm. what the pandemic revealed is that leadership and moral leadership has always mattered. But now it matters at more levels, dimensions, and sectors of society. A school teacher, a school principal has never been more important as the pandemic showed. So this is a time where where if you're a barista in a neighborhood Starbucks, remember the issue they had in Philadelphia where one barista could not handle an issue, uh, and then Starbucks' entire agenda had to focus on uh, racial inclusion uh, and, and equality. So we've never lived at a time where more people in charge of teams, products, divisions, juries, you name it, have to lead with moral authority, especially mm-hmm. because they're in positions of formal authority. And the movie Jaws, you know, the, the, the member of the shark in the movie Jaws, we never saw the shark. We saw the yellow barrels on top of the water and the shark was really scary because it was invisible and, and plus some music that scared us. And we felt that the uh, COVID 19, you know, that was an invisible pathogen that we didn't see, like we didn't see the shark. But the villain in the movie Jaws was not the shark. It was the mayor who kept the beach open. And today, more people are mayors of something. So it's more important to ensure uh, that these mayors uh, really know how to build community and togetherness, et cetera. And that's really what moral leaders do. So I love that discussion about.
1: You know the moral authority and leaders exercising the idea of moral authority now i don't want to get political but i'm going to get political in the sense of we have that battle going on right now between a governor of a certain state and company that is their largest employer and arguably the largest attraction in that state in terms of tourism and what we're talking about folks is Uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida and Disney and Bob Iger coming in and sort of saying, hey, this is what we stand for. This is who we are. And this is how we're going to behave. And the governor turning around and going, I'm going to find three or four ways to really squash you and make you pay for that. Um, How do we get to this stage where the moral authority that a CEO is you know role modeling for their company, yeah, and someone with an ideological perspective yep. says, you know, hey, that's not what business should be about, and business should not be about moral authority
0: and moral leaders. I, again, moral authority, is, yeah. First of all, it's inescapable. You know, uh, the the four, the the CEO then who, who took the stand at sumless had no choice his own employees uh you know neutrality saying i just run a business is mm. no longer uh, there you being take neutrality is itself a stance in this world you business is so fused and not separate from society your own employees uh from abortion laws uh changing to a uh guns and uh, guns in society and in and in and in open carry coming into stores We are now in a world where a war, uh, a tragic, horrific war breaks out and you take a position on that. What about employees saying uh, this person in Russia has been my colleague for 20 years? I know we're going to get out of. I understand the decision commercially and morally to get out of Russia, but that's my teammate for 20 years. What are we doing? So we don't have a choice but to lean into uh, demands and expectations to take a stand. Now, moral leadership is not about taking a stand. It's having a framework for deciding what stand to take, what makes the stand you are taking the right one for you, and what is the source of the rightness. The source could be, I'm the CEO, and this is what I believe. Or the source could be, these are our values. This is our mission. This is the industry we're in, and I want to extricate uh sorry extract the answer from what we share so mm-hmm. a moral leader doesn't say it's right because I'm in charge and this is what my heart tells me a moral leader says these are the values that we share mm-hmm. and these are the principles that have been guiding us in how we make all of our decisions this is what we get out of bed to do in the world and based on that and something happening in the world that has created a nexus, and uh we have to somehow navigate and take a position. Now, this is playing out everywhere. You know, you've got Zelensky and Putin, right? Mm-hmm. Autocracy versus a more uh inspirational leader. This is be- this is playing out in every uh every dimension mm-hmm. of our lives. It's a yeah. battle between different types uh, of leadership. And moral leaders uh get four things right. They they get out of bed. Uh, to be faithful to a purpose that's larger than themselves and isn't their purpose. It's our purpose. You know, it's a shared purpose and they have the right relationship with the purpose. They don't have an instrumental relationship with a purpose. They don't say let's live the purpose. And if we live, the purpose, we'll make more money. We'll win more. The best people will want to work here. No, the best reason to live your purpose is because you're inspired and committed to the purpose. And Mm -hmm. if you do that well as an act of faith and belief, uh, money and success will find you. The best articulation of that ever was the Johnson & Johnson famous credo. When General Johnson took J&J public, he wrote a capitalist manifesto that was moral in nature. Our first responsibility is to the doctors and patients of the world and the communities in which we operate. Basically a recitation of all the ways in which they were going to make the world more healthy. And then it said, if we live according to these principles, our shareholders should, make a fair return, not will. Let's make the world healthy. Why? To make it more healthy and we will make money. But let's not make it more healthy in order to make money because you don't live your purpose for something else. You live your purpose to live your purpose. And it's a it, there's it's a profound distinction to do something and to make money versus do something in order to make money. If you do something in order to make money, people are not engaged, they lean out because that's the reason. So moral leaders live by a purpose to live by the purpose, but they do it so unwaveringly with so much rigor and excellence that money and success finds them. So that's one. The second thing moral leaders do uh, is they really get the how right, because they know that there's only three ways to get another human being to do something. You can coerce them, you can motivate them, or you can inspire them. Coercioners do this because I know that you know that you know that I know that I determine your bonus and I'm your boss. So some version of my way or the highway. And I believe in some coercion. There should be certain lines that if you cross, you get fired. But should the fear of being fired animate 2% of how things happen around this place or 98%? Some things uh, should be coerced. The next is motivation. Motivation. And uh, I believe in giving our people more carrots than my competitors can. Bigger bonuses and better pay and more incentives. Okay. Uh, But the behaviors we want uh, really have to be inspired. Coercion and motivation come from without. Carrots and sticks uh, can get me to do certain things. I think carrots and sticks are the best at shifting behavior. If you give me enough carrots and sticks, Mm -hmm. I could probably get somebody else to work longer and faster and be more productive. But it's not going to make them more humble. We often often put up a little
1: graph that says, here's a carrot, here's a stick. What animal goes in the middle?
0: <laughs> you yeah. Know? Well, let me ask answer you a question. A donkey. A donkey. <laughs> you know? That's great. Great image. So Raj and Tim, throw out some behaviors that you think we need to win in the marketplace today from, from colleagues and teammates. Just throw out some behaviors or attitudes or dispositions.
2: In- innovation, uh, responsiveness. Collaboration. Yeah. Caring. Caring. Creating meaning. Creating
0: meaning. So if you send a bunch of people in a room and say, don't come out until you learn how to collaborate, cooperate, and and find meaningful uh, shared endeavor, can you scare people into that? Mm -mm. Mm -mm. If you tripled their salaries, would you get any more caring? So we now live at a time where what we need from others in order to succeed and win cannot be coerced or motivated. And I call that elevated behavior. If you put a product on sale, I could get you to buy now, not later, or more, not less. If I I create a great political attack ad, I could get you to vote left, not right, right, not left. We are great at nudging and shifting people, but elevating people, Mm -hmm. uh, inspiring people to be elevated, to be empathetic and embracing and uh, devoted and dedicated, et cetera. Elevating somebody is really something that comes from uh, having a sense of purpose and mission and having the heart in the game. And that's really what moral leaders do. They don't shift you, they elevate you. And they do that by making sure that the purpose comes before themselves. They do that through inspiration, right? Um, And then there's a set of values and virtues that, are constantly animating. They they understand the relevance of cost-benefit analysis thinking. At the end of the day, what's clear is what's animating the behavior and the decisions are values and principles. And they understand what they can inspire and what they could demand. For example, if I am leading in a context, I feel it's within my right to be demanding and even coercive. Never lie to me. Always tell me the truth but I can't say always be loyal to me. Moral leaders know what they can demand, the truth, but they also know what they can't demand, like loyalty. That has to be inspired, and they get that distinction right. And finally, mm-hmm. the fourth kind of pillar of the framework is that moral leaders are constantly going to the gym. They're wrestling. They're building muscle. They're they're talking in more meetings about what's the right answer, what makes it equal and just, and the more you do that and the more you ask the right questions – uh, the more the more you build this kind of muscle and in the how report, which you've mentioned, uh, let me just run by a few of these things. So 88 percent of individuals who participated in this research uh, formed the belief that moral leadership is more urgent than ever. Yet only 16 percent of managers and 12 percent of CEOs consistently demonstrate moral leadership as demonstrated by the behaviors that are associated with moral leadership. honesty. Courage, principle, decision making. And so we have a whole framework for that, etc. Uh, 98% of employees would recommend their organization as a good place to work when their most senior leaders are ranked high in the quartile of moral leadership. Okay. Employees with moral leaders as managers, when their direct manager is a moral leader, again, somebody who is not moralistic or moralizing, but embodying and exhibiting practices and behaviors associated with moral leadership, like taking responsibility for actions and not blaming, they are 8% more more likely to strongly agree um, that they are on the right team that takes responsibility. Um, They are more likely to agree that teammates treat each other with respect if the head of the team is embodying these practices, okay? And they are more likely to report high levels of trust etc. Mm. Now, Raj, oh. you talked about innovation when I asked you for behaviors. Uh, do you know why most innovation programs often fail and hit a wall? Is we, It's because we focus on the innovation. We all want progress or better performance, and we know that we can't have that without innovation. We have to do something better than before. So innovation leads to progress. But what we don't talk about is the elephant in the room. When do people innovate? It's when we take a risk. We spend capital at the risk of getting or not getting a return. If somebody speaks in a meeting, if you're their boss, they're taking a risk that you're going to think they're smart or not. So we focus on innovation and not the risk that we need to take in order to innovate to create progress. And when do people take risk? In a high trust environment. Yeah. I call it a trip. Trust, which is what leads to risk, which leads to innovation and progress. So I call that going on a trip. And if If there's a North Star and a shared purpose, then people take only that risk, risk, which furthers the vision and mission of the company. And we've measured that when trust is high, you get 32x, not percent, 32x times risk taking, which leads to 11x more uh, innovation, which leads to uh, 8x um, more uh, progress or performance. And that's what moral leaders do. They foster high trust environments where people take mission-furthering risk in order to innovate. So even if you want innovation, focus on trust, which is really the currency of moral leaders. So so I love that. And and
1: I've been using that trust and engagement. You know, you, you don't have trust and engagement, you're not going to get innovation. Now, you just pointed out that there's data. I love that. 32x, 11x, 8x. There's the data. Yeah. I'm supposed to be a rational businessman. I'm supposed to be a rational leader. You show me the data. It's compelling. Damn it. Yeah. What's that number? 88% of people or employees agree on the urgent need for moral leadership. Only 16% report they've got it. There's this big gap in terms of what's actually going on. And you've got data that says this is a better way of doing things. And we're not seeing massive take up on this right now. What's going on? What have we missed? Because we've been banging on this drum for a long time, Doug. You've been banging on it. We've been banging on it. We've got the
0: data. The Mindsets aren't quite shifting. Okay. So let's take stock of the following adage that is true and will remain true. Uh, what you measure is what you get. And therefore, mm. we should manage what we measure, especially in business or sports. We, we Keeping score matters. Uh, but Einstein said not everything that counts can be counted and not everything that can be counted counts. Moral leaders are very deliberate about metrics because they understand that metrics, uh, mm. what you measure is a choice because when you measure something, you're signifying that it matters. And when you don't measure something, you're saying it doesn't matter. So therefore, our metrics are a window into what we value and into our values. Now, we are living in a scaled up world where we are measuring the how much, how many clicks, how many page views. We don't say how resourceful, it's how many FTEs, how much resource do we need to get this job done, right? How much money should we spend to be number one in this marketplace? We have become great at the how much what's worse is even when we're measuring the how you mentioned engagement like how engaged we tend to quantify that we ask on an engagement survey how many times does your boss take you to lunch but if he yells at you Mm -hmm. at lunch and doesn't talk about the purpose for example i hope it's zero and if it's a meaningful great lunch (laughs) the more the merrier even an esg right Uh, What gets you a high G-score? Well, partly what gets you a high G-score is having independent directors, but there are independent directors who, you know, might really enjoy playing golf with the CEO and the status of being on this board or that board and have not made an independent comment in a board meeting in five years, but they're getting a false positive high G-score. So I think we need a renaissance of metrics. We have to measure the how Uh, and scale out because we're in a horizontal world where how matters. But we're doing that against the backdrop of pretty much picking a uh, measuring only the how much, and even picking a how much proxy for the how, mm. like engagement. Yeah. And uh, these are independence takes courage, independence of thought and of action, uh, and we have to find ways to measure these things directly. And that's what we're so focused on in the in the how institute measuring the how. We call it how metrics and measuring how leaders lead, because until we scale the metrics, uh, I think we're gonna thwart our progress. And also uh, tear down some of the how much things we're obsessed with, uh, and also getting right the relationship between the how and the how much. If we get our hows right, we will see that we're gonna get more of the how much that we want.
1: Yeah, well, as a former balance scorecard guy who sort of helped found that whole movement, I really get that part and um and i just want to point out that if people want to know more about the how institute of what's the best way for them because that's where you're getting the how metrics that's where you're getting the moral leadership um how do they find out more about that well the org and uh
0: there's a lot simplicity, there simplicity i love it yeah the dot org in that way and you know i believe in building institutions I, i'm proud of the of of You know, LRN was founded BE, before Enron, before it was practical, Mm -hmm. if not fashionable to be principal. Um, And it's been uh, a very meaningful journey. Uh, LRN is going to turn 30 years old uh, next year. Uh, And it's got over 2,000. Wow, no kidding. we've, We've actually connected and educated over 50 million employees in over 100 countries, 67 languages. On really how to navigate what's required of them, uh, you know, and and to really help their organizations achieve high standards of compliance with law and regulation and policy, but at the same time, go above and beyond that to become ethically minded and ethically aware uh, and do the right thing from ethical sales practices to respect in the workplace and so on. Uh, But, you know, when you um, And to really do this with a mindset towards being deliberate around fostering a a do it right winning culture. Uh, And the How Institute um, is another uh, endeavor of scaling an institution. Um, This one is a nonprofit and uh, it's the How Institute for Society. And that's deliberate. I think um, sports, media, business, Politics, nonprofit, NGOs are fusing and being very focused on values-based behavior, principled decision making, and moral leadership. Insofar as it uh, helps all d- uh, sectors of society meet, you know, the imperatives of a reshaped world is, is really our focus. Beautiful, beautiful. In that, that way. Now, let me tell you a story of kind of uh, the other thing I'm very passionate about is you know I talked about pausing and. I want to just make a pitch for the word journey. Mm. Think about that. I I think intuitively, ever since we're children, we're told life's a journey, right? Mm. And uh, what makes life a journey is that it zigs and zags. journeys uh, The hallmark of a journey is that they're curvilinear. They go up and down. And in life, Mm. we endeavor to get good at going up and down, falling down, getting back up, uh, being propulsive, moving forward with hope, but at the same time, Uh, learning hard lessons, coming back from, you know, painful defeats, and we just get good at being on a journey. But business tried to separate itself from life and Mm. business loves linearity, Mm. right? All profits need to go straight up, all revenue needs to go straight up, all misconduct needs to go straight down. And that's why every PowerPoint presentation has straight lines up or down, right in that way. And I think the most important thing a leader can do today is described explicitly the path ahead, the future, as a journey. Because Mm -hmm. to be on a journey is to be human. And nothing is more human than to be on a journey. Human beings were not meant for linearity. Just Mm -hmm. execute every day up. This is an up and down world. And we're not going to have boom and bust cycles every 10 years. We're going to go up and down every tweet, every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the secret is, how do we get good at moving forward as we're going up and down And that's what it means to be on a journey. And journeys don't mean that you can't be obsessed with progress and measure how far ahead you're you're moving. But we are in an up and down world. And the CEOs who describe the path ahead as a journey and invite people to journey, uh, I Mm. think, are the ones who are going to keep their feet on the ground and and, and build real value going forward. And, you know, when Paul Pullman became the the CEO of Unilever, Mm. first thing he did is he announced that they are on a journey of sustainable living. And with goals that they're gonna cut emissions by 50% as they double their revenue. And he said it's gonna, it was a 10-year plan. Remember when JFK said we shall put a man on the moon? Mm-hmm. Glorious, you know, awe-inspiring vision. But the more impressive thing about that in retrospect was he said within a decade, I think that's the last time that a US president tried to enlist us in a vision that was more than two terms. Uh, inviting people and inspiring them to be on a 10 year plus journey is incredibly inspiring. And then being rigorous every six months or six days as to how much traction we're getting. And uh, the first thing he did is um, no more quarterly guidance. He wanted freedom from the tyranny of the, you know, the 89 day planning cycle and then announce. Yeah. And, you know, the stock went down and etc. cetera, but he wasn't trying to have a fight with wall street. He was giving permission to 160,000 colleagues at Unilever to start thinking and long-term and being on a long-term journey. And they approached that authentically in so many different ways. And on the 10th year mark, give or take, Regie the private equity firm, and Warren Buffett and Kraft came calling. They tried to buy Unilever. Yeah. And they made a public announcement with a hostile bid. And they paused and thought about it. And uh, if you Google this, you'll see. Uh, And I was in touch with Paul at the time, but it's what's striking about it is if you look at all the headlines, uh, Unilever rebuffed that. And the announcement that they made was uh, we reject this merger, not because they didn't offer enough enough money. They didn't get the the, thank you for the offer. It doesn't reflect our sense of our value. You know what the, the announcement was? We don't share values and we don't share a conception of capitalism the first time i at that level at that stakes i've seen a ceo and board turn down an overture uh in 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 moral terms at any price we don't belong in a marriage we don't share values and models of capitalism now yeah. people didn't think he was bluffing because he built so much moral authority and in how he conducted himself over the prior 10 years that when he made a moral proclamation people didn't think that's just a poker face that's just rhetoric they said, by golly, he believes it. And they, yeah. went, away, and they yeah. went away. And Unilever's yeah. organization and stock has still outperformed their suitor, Kraft, since that
2: day. Yeah, yeah. Well, now I know that Paul is on your board of directors and many other amazing leaders, Ajay Banga and, and Darren Walker and so forth. Uh, just off the top of your head, who are the great moral leaders uh, that have come to mind in the world of business and politics Uh, today and in history, just who are some of those? Yeah,
0: I think there's a a teacher, his name is uh, Shankar. He started walking his students home every day after school uh, and their math scores went up by 32%. Uh, That individual is a moral leader. You know, leaders used to be born or made. You were either born into a high-status family or a monarchy, or you were made a leader. I hereby appoint you vice president. We are living in a world where leaders are self-made, too. Uh, And they're announcing themselves earlier. I, I love watching the teenagers who really have perfected the playbook of truth to power, taking an issue of the future and making it a present concern and bringing urgency to it. You know, they don't even have a, a huge amount of formal power. So they have figured out how to make a wave in the world uh, and, and 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 how to really inspire change. So uh, I tend to look at the hallmark of moral leadership is hmm. seeing uh, the full humanity in the other. So if you look at who's been winning championships in sports, uh, the, you, you've you not seen a Bobby Knight type of autocratic screaming court uh coach win a championship in baseball hockey soccer uh european global soccer football in in 10 years Mm. so i'm studying this so uh when i look at moral leaders it's football coaches it's um you mentioned ajay banga the extraordinary performance of mastercard under his tenure is unrivaled but he Mm. did it explicitly with what he calls the decency quotient Right. And, and, and decency is short for moral decency. Uh, can MasterCard be this successful with an explicit conception of capitalism, which is about uh, um, inclusivity, right? Mm. And uh, equal and digital equality as the world is digitizing and operating uh, as a decent organization that treats people decently? You mentioned Darren Walker. Darren did something you know, part of what moral leaders do is they ask the right question. When he publicly, in as a philanthropist or in charge of a philanthropic organization, asked the philanthropic community, not Mm -hmm. what should we give back when we're so successful, but what should we give up instead? Think of that. The courage to ask a new question. A lot changes when you are asking yourself, not what should I give back, but what should I give up? So I tend to look at moral leadership through certain bold actions they take or doing something that's inconvenient, unpopular, or dangerous, or unprofitable in the short term. To me, it's what's the playbook for it? Who doesn't see X's and O's? But uh, why does Jill Ellis, the the, the fantastic uh, women's football uh, soccer coach, know the names of the dogs and cats of all of her (laughs) players? (laughs) Because there's an interest in their lives. So if you take the moral leadership playbook and you look through it as a lens, who is, you know, what uh, organizations see consumers? If you're running a media organization and you see consumers of news, what are you going to do? You're going to get them to consume news by making it engaging or enraging. But if you see citizens or real people, you're going to be more interested in giving them the truth so that they can practice agency and be citizens. So, I, in, in answer to your question, I mean, obviously Zelensky goes to the top of the list. The first thing he did is he removed the pictures of himself and all government officials from governmental uh, buildings throughout Ukraine and replaced them with pictures of children and said, have them, have their image indelibly in your mind when when, when you're fighting for this country. Uh, that's an act of moral leadership uh, in so in so many ways. So I, I tend to look at it in, in uh, who's coaching uh, through culture. Steve Kerr, the Golden State Warriors coach, the year that he had such a bad back, he missed 43 games. So he, mm. they obviously didn't win the championship that year because he was on the sidelines coaching. They did obviously they had great talent, but their competitors have great talent too. They did it through culture and a mm. certain ethos that, mm. uh, that, that was spirited in that way. Wow. I love it. Love it. I want to make one last pitch, if I can, about moral Dude, leaders.
1: Please, you know, go I, ahead. I,
0: uh, I grew up uh, dyslexic, and reading was a challenge for me. I didn't really read a book cover to cover until I was 17. Uh, one of the things that moral leaders do is they read, hmm. and not just snippets. They read books, and they read. Uh, bec- they give their attention. They get lost in reading. You know, I, don't, I think you covered the uh, the FTX uh scandal that's uh that's playing out but uh sam bankman freed was very public about the fact that he doesn't read and that reading is a waste of his time and he was really Mm. anti-reading and look what Mm. happened and when solomon rushdie was horrifically attacked on stage in chautauqua the audience rushed to the stage and took a risk and they protected him and kept him alive and they transcended the bystander effect. Often, when people see somebody in danger, like on a subway, they become bystanders. Yeah. And the Chautauqua audience community is known for being readers, because when you read, you you get inspired by heroes and people you can emulate when when they're in scary situations. Because courage is not about the absence of fear; it's acting when you're still scared, because you're so you're so devoted to trying to be a do the right thing kind of person. Um, and because it's a highly read audience, they went uh because reading develops a sense of empathy. Reading helps us create us an historical perspective that allows us to, etc. So uh moral leaders do a lot of wrestling and a lot of reading until this all becomes second nature and um and they're humble in that way. They're always on a journey and they're confident. Uh, more yeah. humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And it's uh, having a disposition that whatever I know, there's more that I don't know. So I'm going to keep searching. So um, we talked about journeys. Moral leadership is itself a journey. And I want to end with uh, where I start. You mentioned my book, How, Where I Begin the Book, because we talked about this human age and that organizations are declaring their humanity. Yeah. You know, a wave in the ocean is human energy. And a wave in a stadium, you know, you've participated in a wave. And yes. the first wave was not 1986, Mexico City, La Hola. It was actually 1981 in mm-hmm. in when the A's were playing the Yankees in game three of the pennant race. And I'm fascinated by waves in stadiums because I think it's the single most powerful metaphor of 21st century leadership, which is the ability to inspire a wave. And I begin hmm. how with a with the discussion of La and I got a hold of crazy with A.K. George Henderson, the first professional cheerleader to inspire a wave. Now think about a wave for a second. You can't coerce a wave. Stand up or I'll punch you because people halfway across the stadium are going to feel safe outside your reach. Nobody is rich enough to pay for a wave. Here's twenty dollars. Here's twenty dollars. You can't motivate a wave. You can't be secretive about a wave, stand up, but it's a secret. I won't tell you why. You've got to kind of enlist people in a vision we're standing up for. And it's the ultimate inspired act. You have to inspire people to stand up. And waves are so powerful that after they go around three times, you forget where it started. It typically takes 12 to 20 people in one section. It's typically not the richest people, or the CEOs in the crowd. It's, you know, four guys with four too many beers or some soccer moms and dads. But we've never lived that we're all in a stadium and waves do not happen in high school football stadiums where one side roots against the other. They tend to happen in transparent, oval connected stadiums. And I actually think we're living in a world right now where everything you do can inspire a wave or the opposite. And um, I think that's really what moral leadership is about. Uh, It's about the how, how we inspire waves. Every tweet, every negotiation, every decision uh, is really an opportunity uh, to inspire a wave. And a wave is the single most inspired (laughs) act. And the world has been reshaped in ways to make it a possibility uh, to inspire waves and having a playbook which inspires waves and deep connections. Because if the only reason you worked at a company is what you're paid, you're going to go someplace else when they pay you more. And if the Mm -hmm. only reason you buy a product is the price, you're going to switch loyalties if the price is undercut. And before that, the world had so much friction, you couldn't move around as much. But now that everything is so fluid, we are all looking for deeper adhesion, uh, human glue, deeper ways to hang on to our colleagues, to our suppliers, to our vendors, to society's expectations and thoughts about us. What's the best human glue ever invented? When people share hopes, aspirations, values, principles, that's the best stuff, you know? Uh, um, mm. Right? People in marriages, life partners, they share deep things like a philosophy, etc. So I'm not you surprised. call it bonding, right? <laughs> bonding. I call it human glue. So I'm not surprised that the secular world is really bringing into it and leveraging the best form of human glue ever invented, the deep stuff. And what do moral leaders do? They connect with us in very deep places. Values, principles, purpose, hopes, and aspirations.
1: Beautifully put. What a beautiful metaphor. Mm -hmm. I I love that human wave of moral leadership. Thank you, Dove, for uh, Mm a really thorough look at all of these issues. And thank you to our audience for joining us. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please hit the subscription button on whatever channel you're watching. And if you want to leave a comment and a rating, go on over to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and leave us your thoughts and comments there. And thank you very much to Tech Monterey for both sponsoring this and Tech Sounds for being our producer. Thank you, Dove. Thank you, Raj. Final words, Raj?
2: No, I just want to again appreciate Dov for a masterclass, you know, just the brilliant wisdom and depth and, and heart that he brings to his work. The world is a far better place uh, because of what you're doing now. So thank you for that. And uh, thank you also to uh, the Conscious Enterprise Center at, uh, at Tech, which is working to bring these ideas uh, into the world as well. Thank you.